Thank you for the welcome. My name is Franny, and I am an alcoholic. And uh, I loved what you just did, but I want to tell you, I've already been thoroughly impressed by you, truly. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to make a couple of comments. It, it takes me a bit to warm up, and I just want to ask you something. Did anybody else here notice that, you know, only in a, we are so shameless. Didn't anybody else blink when they figured out that this guy had even the count-up rigged? He already knew who won the contest. No shame. No shame. But the other thing that's really interesting, you know, that's us. That's alcoholics. You know, we love, we love a fixed game. You know, we really do. But the other thing is, is that I also have to say that it seems in our community, God seems to take a particular interest. Because, as is usual with us, did you notice we screwed it up anyway? Uh, yeah. uh, I, I always watch with intense interest because we can plan something till the cows come home and get it wrong with style. And I, and I like that. That's, that's basically the story of my life. I, I can sit down right now. Uh, my mother didn't raise us so that she could say that one's the doctor, that one's the lawyer, and that one's the alcoholic. That's, I come from a, a typical middle class Irish Catholic family. So you know what that means, don't you? I had to, I had to learn how to drink early. Um, one of the other things that happened was I grew up confused because my mother, in her intense effort to keep us away from my father, who was the obvious drunk in the family, I didn't say the only drunk, I said the obvious drunk, that man was such a drunk that he made anybody else that stood next to him look sober. And so we never knew that Mommy was a drunk until after Daddy died. Well, you can't see the moon when the sun's out, and that's all there is to it, you know. But anyway, my mother sent us away to school, so actually, although I am an Irish Catholic kid, I was raised in an Italian convent. And I, didn't pronounce, I did not pronounce my last name properly until I got out of grammar school. And uh, another thing that happened was that... Um, I'm 60 years old, so that means that I was a kid during World War II. And in between being sent off to camp or being sent off to boarding school, you know, just to get us away from Daddy, um, I used to play on the streets with my friends, and I learned how to run the alleys and, and, the, and the, the roofs in Midtown New York in Washington Heights when I was a kid. And I, so I had this private education, and at the same time I ran the streets with my friends in between school and camp, and I thought I had the best of both worlds, and I loved it. Uh, but one time we were playing Army or something like that, some war game, and one of the boys turned around and he said, okay, you be a nurse, and, and these guys over here are going to be the Wops. And I said, what's the Wops? And he said, those are the Italians, those are the enemies. And you know, I don't know how old I was, but I remember just not saying a word and never telling anybody where I went to school. Again, ever. And so I learned how to be a liar, cheat, and a thief real early on in my life because I needed to survive. It was real important. How many people here have an alcoholic parent? And if you've got two alcoholic parents, raise your hands. I want to know. Let's do a reality check here. I was trained to be an alcoholic, right? All the people around me drank. Most of them not too successfully. But I was taught I had to practice so that I could get to be an adult. And in my mind, you're not an adult until you can drink successfully. Also in my mind was the fact that my father was an absolute animal when he drank, and I spent most of my life trying to prove that I could drink the way he did and not wind up doing the things he did. Because I had such a love-hate relationship going with him. Parenthetically, there's newcomers here. I'm standing up here talking about this stuff as if I'm explaining something. We're not explaining anything. We're just helping you pass the time until you get well. This is, this is not a psychological problem, guys. We just don't know what else to do while we're sitting around, so we tell each other stories. You know, we go read something interesting in a book, modify it, um, talk about it as if it's ours. I, I can't do that, you know, like... 
I usually try to make sure somebody's at a meeting with me so keep me honest because I love a good story. I'll claim it in the drop of a hat. But uh, there's too many tapes now, so I can't go too far. <laughs> anyway, so that's what my mother did. And, you know, the first time I drank, I was only six and a half years old, and what I did was I was carrying drinks out to my father's guest at one of his wonderful parties. And uh, he happened to have the friends that wore the fedoras and had Italian accents and smoked cigars. And all their wives were dyed redheads with mink coats and diamonds. My mother, on the other hand, taught at Columbia University, and all her friends were skinny, looked undernourished, and used big words. So they had a party one night, and we were serving drinks to their friends, and um, I tasted the drink on my after I gave them to the guests, because we were cute, you know, and, and I said, Daddy, I can carry more than that. So he really filled up the tray, and my son and I walked directly into the closet and drank everything on our time and passed out cold. Now, what do you got? The next morning, you got this little six-and-a-half-year-old walking out, sick, sober, sorry, and bleeding from the eyeballs, right? You're going to pick her up. You're going to put a little butt right here. You're going to look right in her beady brown eyes, and you're going to say, Franny, you got a cool... My family did the thing that our family did. We made a funny story out of it, and we went on. That's, that's the way we lived our lives. The second time I ever drank, I got drunk, and I threw up all over my bedroom. That's where I found out about projectile vomiting. <laughs> I didn't learn to throw up through my nose until I was well into my disease, but I knew about the... <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> and um, I tried to clean it up as best I could, but man, I was not feeling good. And my mother came in the next morning, and that's the first time I ever saw the Al-Anon face. You know where they give you that look and you just don't know what to do? You know where it's like they expect you to do something and you're supposed to know what it is? I never have had a clue what they want from me. I have Al-Anon friends today. And one of them will say something to the others and they all laugh. And I'm saying, so? We're just on a different wavelength, that's all. It's no problem. As long as we know it, we get along. The minute we forget it, we have a problem. Uh, the next time I drank... That's the third time in my life I drank now. I was 17 years old and I got drunk and I got pregnant. And the, the fourth time I drank, I got married. So I should have known I had a problem with booze. <laughs> but if anybody asked me, Franny, why do you drink, why, why do you do the weird things you do when you drink? I would have said, hey, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing badly in the beginning. You know, I, I'm just trying to learn how. I want to be one of the big kids, and big kids are able to drink successfully. I was never able to. That guy that I married, we moved to, the reason we wound up in California was to avoid the scandal. And um, I lost that baby anyway. And, um, but what I did do is, in good Catholic fashion, I had, the next year I had another kid. I had a, another kid a year after that. We bought a car. I had a kid after that. We bought a house. I had a kid after that. I think we used to celebrate acquisition, you know, and uh, anyway, what happened was uh, by the time I was 25 years old, I had four kids, a car, and a mortgage, and I'm looking around, and I'm saying, is this all there is? What else is there? So I went to my girlfriend, Shirley, in North Hollywood, and I said, Shirley, is this all there is? She said, yeah, what else do you want? And I knew there had to be something else, and not that I was hostile or anything, but I went up to the priest at the Catholic Church. And uh, I found one of the philosophers. He had an Irish accent, so I figured he knew what he was talking about. And I said, Father, if the only thing you want out of me is to breed thousands of little Catholics, why do you bother educating girls? And he looked at me as if it were so self-evident, and he said, Well, so you won't raise ignorant boys. I want to thank you for your reaction. <laughs> because one time I told that story out in the valley, in the San Fernando Valley someplace in California, and everybody looked at me and said, so? And I knew I was in enemy territory. <laughs> I gave my pitch and I got out of there as fast as I could go. But anyway, um, I thanked him for his input, and I walked away from him and I walked away from the Catholic Church. Because I figured they didn't know what they were talking about, and there, there, had, to be, there had to be something else in life. Why did I feel so empty? 
I figured it was because I was busy having all these little kids and I'd never gotten anywhere except from being somebody's daughter and then somebody's wife and then somebody's mother and, you know, this was the age where we were all saying, now I gotta find me. Not that I ever looked down and said, where the hell else am I but right here. I didn't get that till I got into the program. So anyway, you know, I, I, I did my I gotta be me thing and, um, and drank more and drank more and drank more. And, um, and I, I was always restless and irritable and discontented and I, I was never really in a good mood. I was always, I always had an edge. Uh, I just couldn't figure out why other people were able to do what they were able to do and why, you know, I hated you, not as members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but as human beings. I literally hated everyone that came in my life because somehow or other I was so jealous of you because you were competent human beings and I didn't know how to do anything except be a fantastic student. And I mean, how many times can you tell people about a fabulous intellect at a party anyway? So, you know, it was like, not only did you know what to do, you knew when to do it and you knew how to do it. I was always stepping on my tail or my tongue and getting myself in all sorts of trouble and being awkward and embarrassing myself and humiliating myself and, and I always had this thing about God, what am, what am I going to do to myself tonight? So I, I did two things. The first thing is, is when I drank, you got better. I could change me chemically and make you acceptable. Now that's a magic trick if there ever was one. But I did two things with that. The first thing is, I was able to drink, and when I went to a party, I was able to have a good time. And the second thing is, I was able to drink, and I didn't have to worry about what I did. So, I mean, booze was a solution for me. It meant a lot. Now, do we have any fools in this group who actually waited until they got to the party to start drinking? Give me a break. You know, you've got to prepare for anything. And you have a social responsibility to get there and be ready. So I would start drinking hours before the party, and by the time I got to the party, I was on. Maybe it only lasted 15 minutes. Maybe I would throw up in the hostess's lap. But the first 15 minutes of any party were fabulous. And... I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. It, that was 15 minutes out of the day where life was good, and that's more than I could have had if I wasn't drinking. I'll tell you how alienated I was from the world. Does anybody else here remember the day before they were born? You laugh. Just listen, and you'll hear it. The day before I was born, I'm sitting in the briefing room waiting for my assignment with all the other people that are going to be born. And I'm looking around and I get bored. So I get up and I walk down the hall to see what else is going on. And while I'm out of the room, this person walks into the room and they've got this big box. And they, they take this box and they pull these little books out of it. And they give everybody in the room a book. Everybody in the room gets a book. And after they're all finished giving them out, there's one left in the box. And he says, wow. He says, well, maybe supply made a mistake. And he walks out the door. And just as that door closed, I come walking in. And all of a sudden, I realize something's different about this room. What's going on here? And I realize that every person in that room has this book. Well, naturally, you know, I'm hip, slick, and cool. I'm not going to ask anybody what's going on. You know, all my life, I was always unwilling to say, how did you know that? How did you do that? Who said that was the way to do it? How come everybody's in agreement? How come I'm out of step? I was never willing to do that. See, I always had to fake it. So you think at, the, at that moment, you know, that was the first time. Uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not copping out. So I go over because I'm hip, slick, and cool, and I sit down, and I look over at my neighbor, and my neighbor's looking at their book, and it says, The Owner's Guide to Being a Human Being. And see, I was born without my book. And I went through life without my book. So I was always a phony. 
I always, I was in, inappropriate to the point where I, by the time I was a kid, I didn't trust myself anymore. And by the time I was an adult, I knew not to trust myself anymore. And I never laughed and I never cried spontaneously. When I would feel laughter coming, I would go, and I would look around and make sure somebody else was on the same track I was, and then I would be willing to laugh. Not that I really felt it. And the other thing is, is that I was always made sure that somebody else was sad. If I felt like crying, I made sure that it was appropriate. And if you were sad and I wasn't, I could squeeze out a tear or two, no problem. The only thing I wanted to do was fit. And the biggest thing I knew was that I didn't. But when I drank, everything got smooth. All the edges disappeared and life was good. And that's the reason I think it's so important that people realize that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous replaces the conviviality that we are seeking so desperately with booze. Anyway, what happened was phony number one is going through life trying to figure it out and solving problems alcoholically. That's the best I can say. Uh, we moved to the beach and um, I had my kids down on the beach one day and we're walking along and my husband's getting real tired of me. It didn't take long. You know, he knows that there's something desperately wrong. He's got me going to marriage counselors. He's got me going to psychologists. He's got me going to psychiatrists. He's trying to fix me. And I'm laughing and drinking and thinking it's good. The psychiatrist I went to, I told him once, he asked me, he said, Franny, he said, why do you bother coming? He says, you know, it costs Ray a lot of money. And I said, well, I said, you're intelligent enough to entertain me. And I said, and most of his friends are very stupid. So I, I figure it's worth it. There's a certain entertainment value. I said, anytime you want to stop, you just tell me and you can give up the $75 a week. I'm not spending my money. What's your problem? I mean, that's the way I was. So anyway, uh, I'm down on the beach with my kids and there's this group of people over there that are smiling even when nobody's looking. And I was real attracted to that and I walked over and I introduced myself to them. And the guys had these vests on with no shirts and the girls looked like Russian peasants or something, I don't know what. And they have feathers and flowers in their hair and the guys are wearing these headbands and their hair is some of them are longer than the girls. And they're all smoking these funny-looking cigarettes. And they're all saying, peace, brother. And I thought they were wonderful. Nobody asked me what school my kids went to. Nobody asked me what kind of a job my husband had. Nobody asked me whether I had made my bed and cleaned up my house and done my dishes and the 16 loads of laundry I had to do every day. Nobody inquired as to whether I was a good wife or a mother. They wanted to know if I had enough money to buy a half a gallon of wine. I said, yeah. And I found out that I fit in that crowd beautifully. But what happened to me was, within a year, I was running with the guys, the bad guys, that sold these innocents their drugs. And what I found out that year was, I love dangerous men. I do. Hey, I'll go you one better, sweetheart. Did you ever notice that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it, I, I, I know the women know this, I'm sure the men skip it, it says, alcoholic men have an uncanny ability to find wonderful women. It says absolutely nothing about the kind of sleazoids we're attracted to. <laughs> and I love those kind of men. You can... You, you can beat me up, you can steal my money, you can run around on me, you can take me to dangerous places, you can do all that stuff, but don't you dare bore me. <laughs> and you don't know what an alcoholic man is going to do. You don't even know what brain he's wearing when he gets up that morning. You have no idea what personality he's going to put on. It's just wonderful. I've been married four times. The first one was normal. He bored me. He was so normal. He was so square. He was a cube, you know. <laughs> the second one was alcoholic. He was a drinking alcoholic. But that's when I figured out I like those kind of men. And the last two have been members of Alcoholics Anonymous, although one gave up his membership because he decided to go on marijuana maintenance.
And in the meantime, I'm getting older and I have finally reached the age. I, I don't know the, whether it's serenity or senility, but my husband and I have reached the age where we can afford to laugh at each other's peccadilloes and be friends. And that's a marvelous place to be. My husband today is a member, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and is my best friend. And I'm very happy to say that. Speaking of which, I should also like to say that of those four kids, my daughter belongs to ACA because she's still unwilling to admit she's like me. <laughs> and the three boys are sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have to tell you, the world is a better place because those three rats are sober. Because <laughs> they all took after me. Anyway, this husband that I had at the time is really, he's, he knows I'm, I'm fooling around on him. He knows I'm running with some people I shouldn't be running with. He knows that I go down the beach with the kids and I disappear and I leave the kids on the beach. And uh, he knows that there's stuff going on that just simply is not part of my life as a married woman and a mother. And one day he came to me and he said, look, he said, I know what you're doing and I can't stand it, but this is neither the time nor the place, but you and I are going to have a talk. In the meantime, my eight-year-old buddy was going to have his birthday party that day and Ray said to me, I want you to put that birthday party together. It doesn't take that much. I have to work a half a day and when I come back, I want a, a birthday party for Buddy. He really wants his birthday party. I said, hey, you know, don't, don't, just don't give me a hard time. Go to work. When you come back, I'll have the party ready. He goes off to work. I immediately take the kids, go down the beach and I go right to the bar that I always hung out in down on the Redondo Pier and I'm sitting there talking to my best friend, the bartender, about the party for about five minutes. Some guy walks in and starts buying me 151 Mai Tais. And you know, I knew he had intentions on my body, but I also watched him get drunker and drunker until he finally wandered out. And I have to tell you honestly, that's a drinking woman's dream. He's gone. I'm sitting there feeling very good drinking, having drank all this booze. And all of a sudden, my husband, I forgot completely about the birthday party. My husband is standing there so mad he looks he's bright red and the cords on his neck are standing out and he grabbed me and he's dragging me off the bar stool and he's dragging me down the redondo pier in front of all my fine friends that are out there fishing and spitting you know and and right down the end of the pier and and the kids are standing down there and I suddenly realized you know that this is not the kind of thing the kids should see I don't know I had a moment of clarity I had thousands of moments of clarity. I just never paid any attention. But this one caught my eye. And what I did was I pulled some money out of my pocket and I handed it to my daughter who was a year older than the birthday kid. And I said, buy some ice cream. By the time you get home, then we can have the cake and, and we'll have a nice birthday party. No big deal. So my husband poured me in the car and we get home. And, I, and this is spotty because like I said, I was real drunk. But anyway, the next thing I remember is... Um, I'm on the phone, I guess my daughter called the house, and my daughter is saying, Mommy, come back down to the beach quick. We don't know exactly what happened. We had the ice cream, and um, Buddy was sitting on the railing of the pier, and I don't know whether his hands were greasy from the ice cream or one of the kids pushed him, but he went over backwards into the water, and we can't find him. And um, I know what it's like to get struck into absolute cold sobriety right now. I was completely operational. I took my husband, I put him in the car, I drove us back down to the beach, and I started running down the beach because I happened to be a hell of a swimmer, and I'm going in the water to find my kid. And this big fat Samoan friend of mine grabbed me and flipped me around and pushed me down in the sand, kneeling there facing the water, and he's leaning on me, and he's probably the only person in the world that could have done this, and he's holding me down, and he said, Franny, don't you find him. And he held me there in that position until one of my friends came walking out of the water, carrying the body of my birthday kid. And uh, the next thing I remember is standing in uh, South Bay Hospital, and I'm leaning against this wall, looking at my husband. Out, we're outside the emergency room, and my husband's against that wall. And the two of us are standing there like this, watching each other, while we're waiting to find out whether Buddy was alive or dead. And, you know, we couldn't even come together in the middle of that corridor and hold each other. I mean, I could have given more compassion to a total stranger than he and I were willing to give or able to give to each other.
because finally he had nothing for me. This was a man I frequently reduced to tears through my behavior. And finally he's standing there, total stone indifference, and I hadn't had feelings in a long time. And the doctor came out and he said, I'm sorry, he's gone. Now I want to tell you what goes on when you're in a position like that. There's two things primarily. The first thing is there are no atheists. You will pray. And what I did, in spite of having walked away from the church, in spite of walking away from any of the religious influences, and there were many of them that I had in my life, the first thing I said was, God, please don't punish that baby because I am an incompetent being. Don't take his life away because I'm a rotten mother. I mean, if, if there's any equity in this world, I don't fit, I don't belong. I have never fit, I have never belonged. Take me and leave him because he loves life and I just don't. No, nobody loves me. You know, I am a burden to everyone. You know, get rid of me, please. You know, put me out with the garbage. And the second thing that I did was I went into that private place we all have and I found the biggest bargaining chip that I had and I held it up to God and I said, please, if you let this baby live, I will even quit drinking. And you know, I told that story to my sponsor when I took my fifth step and she said to me, do you realize what kind of a statement you make about whether you're an alcoholic or not when you tell me that the best thing that you had to bargain for the life of your kid was a bottle of booze? And I said, yeah, but whenever things really, really got tough, when it was really to the point where I was pleading for my life, that's what I always bargained with. She said, Franny, don't ever come to me whining and wondering about whether you are an alcoholic. Because if booze is your biggest bargaining chip, baby, there is no doubt. And so what I suggest to you today is if you have ever started any kind of a prayerful statement in a moment of stress that says, God, bip, 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 and I will even quit drinking, I suggest to you, you don't have any doubts either. And what happened was uh, my husband broke down the way any normal parent would, and I never cried. Because like I said, you know, liars, cheats, and thieves. I cried on cue, but I never cried spontaneously. And my husband watched me, and he hated me more every day. And he finally came to me after two months, and he said, here's the deal. I talked to the psychiatrist. I talked to the psychologist. I talked to the marriage counselors. I talked to your doctor. I talked to everybody who has ever had any dealings with you. They opened your medical records, and I found out who and what you really are. You're not even a human being. You're a psychopathic deviant. And that's what I was classified by two separate medical boards as a psychopath and they're the ones that either wind up in jail or at the top of the heap there's no in between there's a book out uh, that's called the Catholic Church on Psychiatry I hope it's out of date today but one of the statements in it is that a psychopath was one of those abnormal people who are born with no soul so I thought to myself hmm if I don't have a soul I don't have to answer for anything that's the way I figured it out anyway he said to me here's what's going to happen I'm leaving you and I'm going to divorce you and I'm taking the kids away from you before you murder another one of my children. And he walked out of my life. But because we are overachievers, I went out and I interviewed He was a snake. He drank the way I did. He danced the way I do. You're going to You want to get him before when he's months old. That man that I had so carefully chosen is looking me right in the eye saying, I can't take your game, I'm gone. And I don't want to go back to work. He always got away just before they got there with these nice tall men overcoats and they used to stand there and occasionally they came in the house for tea and mommy used to cry and whine a little bit and they would give her some sympathy and, and, or, and a clean handkerchief and she'd tell them all the horrible things and it was very comforting. So I figured that's what I'll do. I'll, I'm going to turn his ass over to them and they're going to fix him. So I called Alcoholics Anonymous and I said, I'm going to talk to the boss. I'll go to the head of a corporation anytime. And what happened was um, I, they didn't give me Alcoholics Anonymous when I called and asked for it. They gave me the Alano Club in Manhattan Beach. So when I said I want to talk to the boss, there was a heated argument at the other end of the phone 
and there was a lot of clanking and you know obviously they were grabbing the phone from each other I don't know what they were doing but anyway what they were doing is they were arguing about who was going to be boss and finally this guy gets on the phone and he says you know what he said our real higher power isn't here so I'm him because I think I'm authorized to do so if a person calls here in need and I felt that was a valid explanation so I told him what was going on and I told him I wanted him to come and get my husband and he said we don't do those 12-step calls anymore the person who needs the help has to be the one that asked for it and I'm thinking well this is not but in the meantime the guy stays on the phone with me for about 25 minutes talking and you know I was never not drunk by now I was always drunk so you know he must have heard something fascinating in my voice he even offered to send a car for me now don't tell me he wasn't interested in me but I was a lady of course occasionally <laughs> and uh, I said no 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 you just give me the address and I'll show up so he gave me the address and I put 25 cents worth of gas in that big old beater and I put on my 79 cent pair of Zoris that I wore for special occasions I did wear shoes once in a while I put on a camel colored corduroy pair of hip huggers with bell bottoms somebody left them in my backyard but that they fit me and that was all I and I had a man shirt that I had bought at Goodwill with a button missing and I pinned it very carefully right here and I had a sweater that I had stolen from Goodwill because I couldn't afford it. everything was beige if we have anybody here that uh, is planning on drinking in camel color beige good color good color you can throw up all over yourself and after it's dry brush it off and it's, it's not too bad a stain if you sleep in the gutter you know you can sort of like well my one of my tricks was to just turn it inside out so nobody knew it was filthy on the inside in fact one of my first pictures in AA this is how here you want to know how sick I was I'll tell you my sponsor has never let me forget that one of the first pictures I ever gave in AA was how to make a sweatshirt last four days front back inside out front back that's four days this was my offering to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in my first pitch because I felt newcomers should know that anyway so here I am you know uh, getting myself oh and the other thing is is I had a broken nose and two black eyes from the heated and I went into my first meeting of and the guy saw me coming and he went like that he gestured and pointed to the chair right there and I sat down and this guy this guy got up it was a newcomers meeting and he said we're gonna, I'm going to talk for a half an hour and then I'm going to answer questions for a half an hour so he talked and he talked about the person running off with the mailman and everybody laughed and then he talked about the house burning down and everybody laughed and clapped and I couldn't figure out what was going on but I did notice one thing you guys laughed the same time I did and that's the first time that happened in my life I was morbidly fascinated with Alcoholics Anonymous you won me immediately and you, you, you think that's a weird statement I challenge you to this is there anybody here who's ever gone to the movies and you're sitting there and you're watching this hysterically funny scene up on the, on the screen and you're just rolling around and laughing and scratching and having the best time and you suddenly realize that yours is the only voice you hear in that theater this is a room full of weird you got it and newcomers I want to tell you something your sponsor may not tell you but I'm going to clue you in alcoholics are five degrees off center and after you get sober you're sober five degrees off center <laughs> and only a parent can understand that it's the crazy kid that loves the most you know I believe we are God's favorite children we certainly seem to survive on our potential for the long time <laughs> so anyway here I am in this meeting identifying like as just as much as I can and I'm I you know it had been so long since I smiled that my face was hurting from laughing so much and then the guy said okay enough of that enough of that enough of the story now we're gonna play stump the drunk that's where you ask me questions and I you know I didn't know at the time but he had his shill sitting in the crowd you know to prime the pump so anyway 
I did know this. I knew that I had one question to let you people knew that I was just a simple victim of circumstances. So I raised my hand and I said, how do I get my old man to stop beating me? And he said, do you know, since I've been sober, I haven't had anybody else's old man beat me up. He said, but I'm going to call on Indian Jeannie. I want Indian Jeannie to come up and share her experience, strength, and hope with this lady. So Jeannie bellied up to the podium. She says, my name is Jeannie and I'm an alcoholic. Any son of a bitch that lays a hand on me now that I'm sober is going to get a knife right in the gut. <laughs> and I'm saying, how dare these people have the answers? <laughs> and, you know, you won me. That's all I can say. The sad thing is, is that you won me emotionally, but I didn't get it. And for three years, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous drunk. For three years, I showed up, and I was the class mistake. For three years, I was, I had a purpose. A woman walked in one time with one of her babies, and she pointed at me. She said to the girl, you see that? The girl said, yeah. And the woman said, you better start working the steps. <laughs> see, I was busy doing it my way, and there was this lady I couldn't stand. And I was going to go up to her, and I was going to get psychological, and I was going to confront her. And I was going to tell her how I hated her because everybody listened when she spoke at the meetings. And I walked up to her and I said, Dottie, her name is Dottie McCafferty, and I said, Dottie! And she turned around, she looked at me and she said, yeah. And I, I don't know, I didn't say it. It came out of my mouth, but I didn't say it. I said, I want you to be my sponsor. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, God, Franny, I don't know, you're a loser. And you know, I was the tough kid that didn't cry and didn't say please and didn't let on when I was hurting and didn't, didn't let you know when I was laughing. And I stood there looking at her and I'd been through three years of it, Alcoholics Anonymous and wasn't getting it. And, and I did the thing that saved my life. I looked her right in the eye. And what I didn't know was that in saying please, I finally stepped out of being the center of my own universe and made room for another human being. And what I really didn't know was that when I made room for a sponsor, I made room for God. And he didn't even ask if he could come in. <laughs> he never has in my life. So anyway, she looks at me and she said, well, and she put her hand out. One of her lieutenants gave her a directory. She marked it. <laughs> She handed it to me. She says, here, these are the meetings I go to. I'll see you there. I had a sponsor. I didn't know what to do with her. So I carefully avoided her for six months. <laughs> and she called me up. She said, I, I, I was screaming. I was screaming under the pillow because I was still trying to get off booze. And I had my head under the pillow and I'm screaming. And the phone rang and I went, <clears throat> oh. Hello? And she said, how are you feeling? I said, oh, fine, thank you. She said, you are such a liar. She said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come over to my house and I want, I know, she said, I know you're not working. She said, I want you to come over to my house and I want you to hang out with me because she said, you don't know how to live sober. Get your kids off to school, come over to my house, spend some days with me. And I did, and I started hanging out at her house. And you know what I found out? I had inadvertently joined up with a nest of step Nazis. Those people wanted nothing from me except to hear me talking about what step I was on. And they didn't want any funny stories, and they didn't want any drama. They didn't want any of the other stuff that I'd been entertaining myself and the people that are the alcoholics and I, when they called them, when we had a leader who was stupid enough to call on me. And I, I finally figured it out that what these people wanted was some kind of a commitment and an involvement with the program, which is the only thing the program is, is the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. There is, it's nothing else, which means that occasionally, have you ever noticed it, someone will say, well, yeah, he's got a good job and his life is pretty much in order, but I really can't say too much for his program. You ever heard people say that? How, how about this one? Well, 
If they had a really good program, they wouldn't have financial problems right now. You don't recognize these? That's not Alcoholics Anonymous. That's Calvinist. Hasn't got a thing to do with the program. You know, if you want, if you want to impress me, have some trouble, come to the meetings and talk about it and walk through it without drinking. People, people who are successful, are financially successful, are merely financially successful. Now, they might have practiced the principles, which we know the principles will give you an easier and better life. But there are things that come down in our lives. There are lessons that we learn that God gives us as a gift so we can grow. This program is not about working the steps and suddenly never having a problem again in your life. Boring. You might as well die. You've got nothing else to do. You know, I don't know about the rest of you, but every time things get good, God says, let's make her life interesting. Let's, let, let's help Franny grow. There have been days when I've gotten up and I've said, please, God, no learning experiences today. <laughs> Come on. Now you know why I'm not your Sunday morning speaker. <laughs> I am on cordial terms with my higher power, you know, and... and and thank God, thank you know, one day, one Christmas, I didn't have any money. The first Christmas I was sober, had no money. I had four kids and four dollars. I was on welfare. And I was very afraid to go to shopping for Christmas because when my husband cut me off from the money because I used to drink it all up instead of buying groceries, I learned how to be a shoplifter. Well, I wasn't going to give up the booze. And it's easier to steal a steak than a bottle of Courvoisier. So I used to slip the bottle of, I used to slip the steak under my jacket and pay for the Courvoisier. And that way I had both. And uh, one of the other things I used to do was exchange the privileges of my body for booze. One time I walked into the liquor store. This is after I found AA, but before I got sober, I was 33 years old. I walked into a liquor store in a really sleazy part of town and I offered to negotiate the use of my body temporarily for some booze and the guy, my best friend, whatever his name was, that worked behind the bar that day, looked me right in the eye and said, Franny, you're not worth a half a pint of scotch. No? That's not what got me here either. What got me here was not the death of my kids. It was not the kind of humiliation that I had imposed myself. What got me here was I simply ran out of steam. I was here because I knew there was no place else, but I kept drinking because until I moved out of being the center of my universe and made space for somebody else, some kind of higher power, I wasn't making it. And what happened was I started working those steps and, and I took the fourth and the, the first, the second and the third and I, I was so full of love and joy after I took the third step, I couldn't believe it. And I went to my sponsor and I said, I don't know what to do with myself. And she said, I thought she was going to send me off to China to save alcoholic souls. She said, why don't you go home and do your dishes? Well, you know how we drink it, people? I did my dishes at her. I washed the dish, I smashed it. I washed the dish, I smashed it. But you know what? After washing and smashing for quite a period of time, because I hadn't seen the bottom of that sink in six months at least, and after I cleaned up whatever the brown and green fuzzy things that were growing and moving in the bottom, I looked at it. And I rinsed it out and I dried it and I'm standing there. I got a clean sink. And I went to the meeting that night and now they're calling on me. He said, Franny. I said, hi, my name's Franny and I'm an alcoholic and I got a clean sink. <laughs> and she wasn't there. So I called up my sponsor and I said, Daddy, I have to talk to you. That's the way I always, she said, what now? I said, I got a clean sink. She said, good, do it tomorrow. And, and by doing stupid things that didn't seem to have anything to do with the problems in my life. I can't pay my rent. Go home and do your dishes. God, you know they're going to evict us. Are you working the, the, the sixth and the seventh step? How, where are you on your ninth step? One time I got so mad at her. You're asking me to give money back. I don't even have enough money to pay my rent. She said, Franny, prime the pump. She said, give 10% of whatever comes in and you will always have enough. Pay your debts off. You've got to be putting it back into the universe. You are not entitled to anything 
that you have acquired dishonestly. Anything. I said, ashtrays. She said, anything. I said, what about the people that died? How am I going to take my ninth step with them? How about the businesses that are no longer in business? How am I going to take care of them? You know, how about the wives that I've hurt because of my affairs with their husbands? How am I going to take care of them? So we went through my list, and here is a summary. A lot of the people, the best amend I could make to them was staying out of their face for the rest of my life. The second thing was the people that died in the businesses that went out of business, we computed it as best we could, and then she tripled it because she knew I had a tendency to speak for my own self-interest. <laughs> and she said, okay, here's the deal. She said, for the rest of your life, you're going to be putting back. She said, because if you're not entitled to anything that you've acquired dishonestly, and there's no way you can make a direct amend, then you make yourself available to the alcoholic who still suffers, and you thank God for that opportunity. And you know why? I'm standing here. I stood up. I got 25 years coming up in February, God willing. And the fact is, is that it's because I've been willing to come to meetings, I believe, is the only reason I'm still alive. And you know, I go to meetings because it's the best place to be able to put back. This is where you're going to find the newcomers. My husband and I were talking about it last night, and he said, you know, if there were no more Alcoholics Anonymous, he said, do you know how hard we would have to work to be able to keep our balance? We would have to be going to hospitals to find these people. We would have to be going all the way downtown to the missions. I mean, he says, people don't realize how fabulous it is that Alcoholics Anonymous has provided us with a place to meet the people we need to work with so we can get well. He says, I understand why it's a selfish program. And I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. And we were on our way to a meeting at the time we were. And so what's happened is, is that I keep going and I'm grateful. The problem is, people go to meetings and find out what happens to people who don't go to meetings. You know, you guys, are, you're in a good spot. And I don't know exactly how to reach those other guys, except occasionally one comes wandering in. And I, did you notice what happened after 10 years in your count-up? I always pay attention to that. How come there's so few of me around? There's me, there's him. Where's the rest of the old-timers? Don't tell me they're all in Florida. <laughs> I know better. One of the things I noticed in our community is that the old-timers get old. They don't see that well. And um, they can't drive anymore. And sometimes they get cranky and nobody wants to be around them. And what happens is, what we've done is, uh, we've got a couple of sobriety squads in our area, and these people go and befriend these old-timers that haven't been going to meetings and make themselves available on a regular basis, wonder where we got that, and help these old, old guys and these old duffers and these old beautiful old ladies get to meetings. You know, I, asked, I went and picked one up one time and I said to her, Ruth, you know, you started this meeting. How come you're not going to it anymore? She said, well, you know, she says, I don't drive. And, and she said, and, and, and it's a noon meeting and there's a lot of people, the young people are busy and... She says, I guess everybody figures with as much time sober as I've got that I don't have problems. And I'm just, maybe she says they figure I'm not capable of getting to the liquor store. She laughed. And I said, well, what can you do about it? And she said, you know, I got tired of calling and asking. People were, people were willing to do it a couple of times, but then they always got busy. So then I had to start, you know, negotiating again. You know, these people, you know, we talk about the newcomers being the light of the program. Well, I got to tell you, the old timers, and you're not going to get any circulation if you haven't got both. And since I'm the one that's talking, I got one more thing to say. <laughs> and it's this. We have cripple shooters in our neighborhood. 13 steppers. Have you, you know, if alcohol is the absolute, it doesn't respect race, any ethnicity, religion, sex, age, or anything else, how come it isn't 50-50, the women and the men in the, in the meetings? How come there's always more men than women? And I, well, my theory is it's because a lot of women come into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous looking for Uncle Daddy because that's how they've survived. And when you sober up a horse thief, he's going to steal better horses. 
So what happens is we got these people that come into Alcoholics Anonymous and we got a good look, a lot of good looking young people that are desperately looking for somebody to fix them and we got enough sick people who've been in the program for a while who'll actually raise their hand and say, yeah, I'll try. And then what happens is when they finally break up, the women go away because the guy got custody of the meeting or something. I don't know why. <laughs> and the other thing that happens is that occasionally the guys will come to me and they'll say, after they've married these newcomers, now the newcomer's got about a year and she's turning into a dragon. And the guy comes to me and he says, please talk to her. I, you, you need to, you got to talk to her. And I told this one guy, I said, you don't want me to talk to her because after I'm finished talking to her, she'll probably divorce your ass. I said, because, you know, what happened to me was I went to my sponsor when I was real new and I said, Dottie, Ellie has a boyfriend, Janet has a boyfriend. Where's mine? Must I remain celibate for the rest of my life? She looked me right in the eyeball. She said, maybe. She said, but Franny, consider this. As sick as you are, any guy that's interested in you isn't worth your time. The husband that I have today is sober, sponsors people, goes to meetings, works a hell of a program. In fact, I told him that God put me in his life so that he would be forced to work an absolutely fabulous program. <laughs> so not only do I love him, I respect him. And you know you can't ask more than that out of a human being. And I got a whole bunch of babies that respect me and they don't realize it. I respect them. I learn more from them than they'll ever learn from And you know, I still have that same nasty... You know, so she's got all the experience and I hold on to her. And I got all these little hopefuls running around there. Like, it's like herding, it's like herding pigs. You just can't keep them in a pack. You know, they're, they're off doing their things, you know. They, they do their thing and then they come and tell me. I keep saying, no, it's the other way around. And, uh, one of them came to me one time. She said, you know how you said, you said we really shouldn't get involved for a year? I said, yeah. She said, well, I have eight months and Bill has four months and that makes a year. And we moved in together last night. Anyway, I've got this sponsor. She's got the experience, right? And I got these babies, and I just told you what they're like, right? But they got all the hope in the world. So it looks like we've got the experience with strength and the hope. But you know, the truth of the matter is I just told you my story, and you know the only thing that I have is faith. But anyway, I'm holding on on this side, and I'm holding on on this side, and when you go through life like that, you can't fall down. <laughs>